Chapter Eight, Section Two of the Promise of American Life by Herbert Crowley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Eight, Section Two: The Implications of National Development. In 1789, the bombshell of the French Revolution exploded under this fabric of semi-national and semi-despotic, but wholly royalist and aristocratic, European political system. For the first time in the history of European nations, a national organization and tradition was confronted by a radical democratic purpose and faith. The two ideas have been face to face ever since, and European history thereafter may, in its broadest aspect, be considered as an attempt to establish a fruitful relation between them. In the beginning it looked as if democracy would, so far as it prevailed, be wholly destructive of national institutions and the existing international organization. The insurgent Democrats sought to ignore and to eradicate the very substance of French national achievement. They began by abolishing all social and economic privileges, and by framing a new polity based in general upon the English idea of a limited monarchy partial popular representation, and equal civil rights. But, carried along by the momentum of their ideas, and incensed by the disloyalty of the king and his advisers and the threat of invasion, they ended by abolishing royalty, establishing universal suffrage, and declaring war upon every embodiment, whether at home or abroad, of the older order. The revolutionary French democracy proclaimed a creed, not merely subversive of all monarchical and aristocratic institutions, but inimical to the substance and the spirit of nationality. Indeed, it did not perceive any essential distinction between the monarchical or legitimist and the national principles, and the error was under the circumstances not unnatural. In the European political landscape of 1793, despotic royalty was a much more conspicuous fact, than the centuries of political association in which these monarchies had been developed. But the eyes of the French Democrats had been partially blinded by their own political interests and theories. Their democracy was in theory, chiefly a matter of abstract political rights which remitted logically in a sort of revolutionary anarchy. The actual bonds whereby men were united were ignored. All traditional authority fell under suspicion. Frenchmen, in their devotion to their ideas and in their distrust of every institution, idea, or person associated with the old regime, hacked at the roots of their national cohesion and undermined the foundations of social order. To the disinterested political philosopher of that day, the antagonism between the principle of political authority and cohesion, as represented by the legitimate monarchies, and the principle of popular sovereignty represented by the French democracy, may well have looked irretrievable. But events soon proved that such an inference could not be drawn too quickly. It is true that the French democracy, by breaking so violently the bonds of national association, perpetuated a division between their political organization and the substance of their national life, which was bound in the end to constitute a source of weakness. Yet the revolutionary democracy succeeded, nevertheless, in releasing sources of national energy, whose existence had never before been suspected and in uniting the great body of the French people for the performance of a great task. Even though French national cohesion had been injured in one respect, French national efficiency was temporarily so increased that the existing organization and power of the other continental countries proved inadequate to resist it. When the French democracy was attacked by its monarchical neighbors, 
the newly aroused national energy of the French people, was placed enthusiastically at the service of the military authorities. The success of the French armies, even during the disorders of the convention and the corruption of the directory, indicated that revolutionary France possessed possibilities of national efficiency, far superior to the France of the old regime. Neither the Democrats nor Napoleon had, in truth, broken as much as they themselves and their enemies believed with the French national tradition, but unfortunately that aspect of the national tradition perpetuated by them was by no means its best aspect. The policy, the methods of administration, and the actual power of the Committee of Public Safety and of Napoleon, were all inherited from the old regime. Revolutionary France merely adapted to new conditions, the political organization and policy to which Frenchmen had been accustomed, and the most serious indictment to be made against it, is that its excesses prevented it from dispensing with the absolutism, which social disorder and unwarranted foreign aggression always necessitate. The revolution made France more of a nation than it had been in the 18th century, because it gave to the French people the civil freedom, the political experience, and the economic opportunities which they needed, but it did not heal the breach which the Bourbons had made, between the political organization of France and its legitimate national interests and aspirations. France in 1815, like France in 1789, remained a nation divided against itself, a nation which had perpetuated during a democratic revolution, a part of its national tradition most opposed to the logic of its new political and social ideas. It remained, that is, a nation whose political organization and policy had not been adapted to its domestic needs, and one which occupied an anomalous and suspected position in the European international system. On the other hand, French democracy and imperialism had directly and indirectly instigated the greater national efficiency of the neighboring European states. Alliances among European monarchs had not been sufficient to check the imperial ambitions of Napoleon, as they had been sufficient to check the career of Louis the Fourteenth, because behind a greater general was the loyal devotion and the liberated energy of the French people. But when outrages perpetuated on the national feelings of Germans and Spaniards, added an enthusiastic popular support to the hatred which the European monarchs cherished towards a domineering upstart, the fall of Napoleon became only a question of time. The excess and the abuse of French national efficiency and energy, consequent upon its sudden liberation and its perpetuation of an illogical but natural policy of national aggression, had the same effect upon Europe as English aggression had upon the national development of France. Napoleon was crushed under a popular uprising, comparable to that of the French people, which had been the condition of his own aggrandizement. Thus, in spite of the partial antagonism between the ideas of the French revolutionary democracy and the principle of nationality, the ultimate effect of the revolution both in France and in Europe was to increase the force and to enlarge the area of the national movement. English national sentiment was enormously stimulated by the strenuous wars of the revolutionary epoch. The embers of Spanish national feeling were blown into spasmodic life. The peoples of Italy and Germany had been possessed by the momentum of a common political purpose, and had been stirred by promises of national representation. Even France, unstable though its political condition was, had lost none of the results of the revolution for which it had fought in the beginning, and if the Bourbons were restored, it was only on the implicit condition that the monarchy should be nationalized. The revolutionary democracy, 
subversive as were its ideas, had started a new era for the European peoples of national and international construction. Of course, it was by no means obvious in 1815 that a constructive national and international principle had come to dominate the European political system. The Treaty of Vienna was an unprincipled compromise among the divergent interests and claims of the dominant powers, and the triumphant monarchs ignored their promises of national reform or representation. For one whole generation they resolutely suppressed, so far as they were able, every symptom of an insurgent democratic or national idea. They sought persistently and ingeniously to identify in Europe the principle of political integrity and order with the principle of the legitimate monarchy. But obscurantist as were the ideas and the policy of the Holy Alliance, the political system it established was an enormous improvement upon that of the 18th century. Not only was the sense of responsibility of the governing classes very much quickened, but the international system was based on a comparatively moral and rational idea. For the first time in European history a group of rulers, possessing in theory absolute authority, and forming an apparently irresistible combination, exercised this power with moderation. They did not combine, as in the case of the partition of Poland, to break the peace and prey upon a defenseless neighbor, but to keep the peace and if to keep the peace meant the suppression wherever possible of liberal political ideas, it meant also the renunciation of aggressive foreign policies. In this way, Europe obtained the rest which was necessary after the havoc of the Revolutionary Wars, while at the same time, the principle on which the Holy Alliance was based was being put to the test of experience. Such a test it could not stand. The people of Europe were not content to identify the principle of political order whether in domestic or foreign affairs, with that of legitimate monarchy and with the arbitrary political alignments of the Treaty of Vienna. Such a settlement ignored the political forces and ideas which, while originating in revolutionary France, had nonetheless saved Europe from the consequences of French revolutionary and imperial aggression. Beginning in 1848, Europe entered upon another period of revolutionary disturbance, which completely destroyed the political system of the Holy Alliance. At the outset, these revolutions were no more respectful of national traditions than was the French Revolution, and as long as they remained chiefly subversive in idea and purpose, they accomplished little. But after some unsuccessful experimentation, the new revolutionary movement gradually adopted a national program, and thereafter, its triumphs were many and varied. For the first time in political history, the meaning of the national principle began to be understood, and it became in the most explicit manner a substantial and a formative political idea. The revolutionary period taught European statesmen and political thinkers that political efficiency and responsibility both implied some degree of popular representation. Such representation did not necessarily go as far as thoroughgoing Democrats would like. It did not necessarily transfer the source of political authority from the crown to the people. It did not necessarily bring with it as in France, the overthrow of those political and social institutions which constituted the traditional structure of the national life. But it did imply that the government should make itself expressly responsible to public opinion, and should consult public opinion about the important questions of public policy. A certain amount of political freedom was shown to be indispensable to the making of a nation, and the granting of this amount of political freedom was no more than a fulfillment of the historical process in which the nations of Europe had originated. The people of Europe had drifted into groups, 
the members of which, for one reason or another, were capable of effective political association. This association was not based at bottom on physical conditions. It was not dependent on a blood bond, because as a matter of fact the racial composition of the European peoples is exceedingly mixed. It was partly conditioned on geographical continuity without being necessarily caused thereby, and was wholly independent of any uniformity of climate. The association was in the beginning largely a matter of convenience or a matter of habit. Those associations endured which proved under stress of historical vicissitudes to be worthy of endurance. The longer any particular association endured, the more firm it became in political structure and the more definite in policy. Its citizens became accustomed to association one with another, and they became accustomed to those political and social forms which supplied the machinery of joint action. Certain institutions and ideas were selected by the pressure of historical events, and were capitalized into the effect of local, political, and social traditions. These traditions constituted the substance of the political and social bond. They provided the forms which enabled the people of any group to realize a joint purpose or, if necessary, to discuss serious differences. In their absence the very foundation of permanent political cohesion was lacking. For a while the protection of these groups against domestic and foreign enemies demanded, as we have seen, the exercise of an absolute political authority and the severe suppression of any but time-honored individual or class interests. But when comparative order had been secured, a higher standard of association gradually came to prevail. Differences of conviction and interest among individuals and classes, which formerly were suppressed or ignored, could no longer be considered either as so dangerous to public safety as to demand suppression, or as so insignificant as to justify indifference. Effective association began to demand, that is, a new adjustment among the individual and class interests, traditions, and convictions, which constituted the substance of any particular state, and such an adjustment could be secured only by an adequate machinery of consultation and discussion. Cohesion could no longer be imposed upon a people, because they no longer had any sufficient reason to submit to the discipline of such an imposition. It had to be reached by an enlarged area of political association, by the full expression of individual and class differences, and finally by the proper adjustment of those differences in relation to the general interest of the whole community. As soon as any European state attained, by whatever means, a representative government, it began to be more of a nation, and to obtain the advantages of a more nationalized political organization. England's comparative domestic security enabled her to become more of a nation, sooner than any of her continental neighbors, and her national efficiency forced the French to cultivate their latent power of national association. In France the government finally succeeded in becoming nationally representative, without much assistance from any regular machinery or representation, become nationally representative, without much assistance from any regular machinery of representation, but under such conditions it could not remain representative. One of its defects as a nation today is its lack of representative institutions to which Frenchmen have been long accustomed, and which command some instinctive loyalty. Stimulated by French and English example, the other European states finally understood that some form or degree of popular representation was essential to national cohesion, and little by little they have been grafting representative institutions upon their traditional political structures. 
Thus the need of political and social cohesion was converted into a principle of constructive national reform. A nation is more or less of a nation, according as its members are more or less capable of effective association, and the great object of a genuinely national domestic policy is that of making such association candid, loyal, and fruitful. Loyal and fruitful association is far from demanding mere uniformity of purpose and conviction on the part of those associated. On the contrary, it gains enormously from a wide variety of individual differences, but with the essential condition that such differences do not become factious in spirit and hostile to the utmost freedom of intercourse. But the only way of mitigating factiousness and misunderstanding is by means of some machinery of mutual consultation, which may help to remedy grievances, and whose decision shall determine the political action taken in the name of the whole community. The national principle, that is, which is precisely the principle of loyal and fruitful political association, depends for its vitality upon the establishment and maintenance of a constructive relation between the official political organization and policy, and the interests, the ideas, and the traditions of the people as a whole. The nations of Europe, much as they suffered from the French Revolution and disliked it, owe to the insurgent French democracy their effective instruction in this political truth. It follows, however, that there is no universal and perfect machinery whereby loyal and fruitful national association can be secured. The nations of Europe originated in local political groups, each of which possessed its own peculiar interests, institutions, and traditions. Their power of fruitful national association depended more upon loyalty to their particular local political tradition and habits than upon any ideal perfection in their new and experimental machinery for distributing political responsibility and securing popular representation. A national policy and organization is, consequently, essentially particular. And, what is equally important, its particular character is partly determined by the similarly special character of the policy and organization of the surrounding states. The historical process in which each of the European nations originated included, as an essential element, the action and reaction of these particular states one upon the other. Each nation was formed, that is, as part of a political system which included other nations. As any particular state became more of a nation, its increasing power of effective association forced its neighbors either into submission or into an equally efficient exercise of national resistance. Little by little, it has been discovered that any increase in the loyalty and fertility of a country's domestic life was contingent upon the attainment of a more definite position in the general European system. Any attempt to escape from the limitations imposed upon a particular state by the general system was followed by a diminished efficiency in its machinery of national association. The full meaning of these general principles can, perhaps, be best explained by the consideration in relation thereto of the existing political condition of the foremost European nations, Great Britain, France, and Germany. Each of these special cases will afford an opportunity of exhibiting a new and a significant variation of the relation between the principles of nationality and the principles of democracy. And together they should enable us to reach a fairly complete definition of the extent to which, in contemporary Europe, any fruitful relation can be established between them. What has already been said sufficiently indicates that the effective realization of a national principle, even in Europe, demands a certain infusion of democracy but it also indicates that this democratic infusion cannot, 
at any one time, be carried very far without impairing the national integrity. How far, then, in these three decisive cases, has the democratic infusion been carried and what are the consequences, the promise, and the dangers of each experiment? End of chapter 8, section 2